the gospel lesson. It comes to us from the good news according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of our Lord. One of my good friends whose identity will remain mysterious this morning. I had a big year. Uh, his daughter got married. The first kid in his family to get married. Uh, we grew up together. Uh, this friend and I, uh, we grew up not of any sort of means, sort of lower middle class, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And when he got married, he married into money. It's just what happened. He married into uh, a family that's got generational wealth and a lot of connections in the city where they live. Uh, and so this was the year of what I would call the six-figure wedding. Uh, the wedding cost almost six figures, not quite, uh, lots and lots of money, uh, more money than I've ever seen in a bank account anywhere in my life, uh, all for one event. And the funny thing is, is that was this summer, and for the nine months or so before that, every single time I spoke to this friend, well, how are things going? Well, I'd get to hear about the wedding prep. Uh, it seemed like the wedding prep was all they did for nine months. I mean, forget a job or hanging out or holidays. There was wedding preparations to be made because dignitaries, senators, uh, fancy clergy, all sorts of stuff were coming to this giant, huge, expensive event. They spent the whole year getting ready for it. It went well. Spoiler alert. Big, important events take a lot of preparation. I mean, most of you probably just celebrated Thanksgiving. Some of you are already getting ready for Christmas, out doing Christmas shopping, getting your tree, putting things in the windows. Often, things that we value take a lot of prep work, a lot of preparation to get ready for. But sometimes that prep work is even harder because you're not dealing with just a blank slate like a date on a calendar and endless options of how to plan things. Sometimes you're trying to prepare 
something, and it takes a lot of work. Take, for example, this building, which, by the way, we hope the boiler will be working next week or the week after. We're getting close. Thankful for the temporary heaters. Make it bearable in here. Sometimes there's something that has existed, and it's a certain way. Maybe it's a backyard that you moved into in Brooklyn, and you realize it's going to take a lot of work to dig it up. Uh, Maybe it is like an apartment or a house or this building. You've heard of cities that win a bid to host the Olympics and let's spend the next 10, 20 years getting ready for it, preparing their infrastructure, building new buildings, all sorts of things to get ready to host the world at an Olympic event. See, the nature of the work that we're doing, whether we're out in the back digging or whether we're in nice places trying on dresses, the nature of the work tells what kind of event we are preparing for. So if you talk to someone and they're looking at flower arrangements and they're tasting chocolates and they're doing things, then maybe they're getting ready for a wedding. And if they're down in the window wells digging out a decade's worth of leaves and other kinds of hummus that has made it down there, then maybe they're fixing up a building that they hope to inherit. There's not usually a blank slate. Usually we can look and see that the kind of work we're doing tells what we're preparing for. And in the ancient Near East, in the time in which the Bible was written and recorded, one of the things that was most special that could happen to your town was if Caesar came into town. It's still not unlike that. If king or a president or a celebrity comes to town, people are looking out for them and get ready, try to get things ready to go. But back then, if Caesar came through, you were coming through the most powerful empire in the history of the world, the most powerful person in the history of the world. And of course, this is pre-modern times. There's a bit of a divine human connection between Caesar uh, and you and Caesar and the gods, kind of a godlike person perhaps even divine. And so, uh, I, I didn't find this for you, but it is actually true. It sounds just like our text for a reason, uh, the text in the New Testament. When Caesar would come to town, they would go send people ahead to prepare. They would get the road ready because you can't have your chariot popping a wheel off and the Caesar tumbling out into the, into the mud. That's not going to happen. So they go and they get the highways ready. They get the roads ready. They fix the paths. They go out with their entourage and the trumpets, and they announce things like, Behold, I bring to you good news of a new king who has been born in Rome. His name is Caesar, Savior, Augustus. He is bringing a kingdom of shalom and peace, Roman Pax Romana, right? This is exactly how they announced it to a town, and people were meant to get ready and to prepare for the Caesar who is coming to visit them. Something similar is happening in our passage. Of course, The Old Testament people of God have been waiting and waiting and waiting for decades and hundreds and hundreds of years and more for their Messiah, for their King. And this was a special time of preparation. Of course, they would constantly prepare themselves in various ways through the temple and the tabernacle and all the ways that they could worship God and get ready. But here was a special season. Things had been sort of going around that there's this new king. It's about time for the Messiah to come. And so this one comes, John, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist, comes and he goes out into the wilderness of Judea, outside the city, out where it's just desert, near the river, and he's preaching and telling people to repent. As I was reading that, it, it came out to me how much he says repentance in there. Even though I hadn't prepared to say much about that, it just reminded me how important it is to 
to understand the words that we use. That sounds like such a religious word, and it is in our terminology. You've heard repent, and it means it, it feels kind of intense and, and mean and icky and like something really hard to do and makes you feel bad about yourself. But that's not what the word actually means. It's just metanoia. Can you hear it in there? Meta? Noia is your mind. It's kind of having a change of mind. Getting outside of the normal patterns of thinking that people have onto God's level of thinking, something meta and above us. That's what it means to have your mind transformed to a higher and different level. He says over and over again, you need to be transformed in your mind and think differently about your life and your expectations and what is happening. Come out here and prepare. Prepare. We're still awaiting today at Advent the Messiah, not to come for the first time, but to come again as he promised, to bring the fullness of his presence. He's promised to come again, and he's promised to come again and again in history by his spirit, by extending his reign, his loving kingdom. And so we are meant to be as well, people of preparation, those people who go out and get the highway ready for the Lord to come in more fullness in our day, in our time, in our communities, in our hearts, in our relationships, in our world, in order that it's ready for him to come in fully. And so what kind of preparation do we make? What does that look like? Does it look like cleaning out the window wells or picking out a dress? What kind of preparation are we to be busy with? What are people to see us busy doing or non-busy doing? What do they see us preparing? That will tell us what kind of person and event and presence we expect to come and show up. This arrival of our king, one who the scriptures call our king, our lover, a great and powerful and fair judge, a friend, a healer, the one who brings the end of all things, who brings a kingdom of peace and shalom, of universal flourishing. This is what we are preparing for, and yet, here's the problem. Here's why we have to be told to change our minds, to have metamind, to repent. Because our default is not, is, is it not, is to be like hoarders at home. You ask me to go out in the wilderness, travel light, I got a lot of comforts here in my house right? I think I'll stay here. It's hard to think about going out into the wilderness of changing the way that we live and interact and think and our patterns and routines in order to welcome God's arrival, to set our hopes again and again on his kingdom. We're unwilling to kind of purge the accoutrements and comforts of our lives and go reset out in the wilderness, Prefer to stay busy with our own agendas and our own hopes for what the world needs or we think it ought to be. Or we forget and get lazy or distracted. But in all these ways, we stop preparing for his salvation. For the salvation that he wants to bring. And so we are challenged to repent and get about the work of preparing. I read an article some years ago and the article is about how to avoid giving terrible Christmas gifts, right? Who wants to avoid giving terrible Christmas gifts? Uh, basically, the article consisted of people writing in and telling 
stories about the terrible gifts they received from a spouse or in-law or a parent. Some were really funny, some were really sad, but here's one I want to share with you. This is an actual report in the article. Two years ago, I got this musical jewelry box from my mom. I'm a 22-year-old male, by the way. Also, I never wear any sort of jewelry. The worst part is pretending that I like it. I felt really guilty about not liking it because I'm sure it had some sort of sentimental value. I just sort of put it in the corner of my closet and then I forget about it. She would ask me where it was or if I'd put anything in there and I'd be like, um, yeah. See, I I really like it. Thanks for the great present, mom. And now every time I see it, it makes me feel guilty about every single horrible thing I've ever done to my mother. Maybe that's why she gave it to me. Then the writer of the article said a good rule of thumb was never to give a gift that suggests a desperate need for change. So don't give something that suggests a radical change in image or weight loss or something, some other crisis. Even if you know or think that there is a desperate need for change in someone's life, this isn't the time to send that message, okay? No one wants to hear you need to change because we'd rather be comfortable. Especially after all we've been through, living through this pandemic here in New York City, we want comfort. We want to forget our troubles. We don't want to think about them. We want comfort even if it's just the Southern comfort kind, right? But Advent is an annual call to repent, to get prepared, to get ready, to get it straight, to straighten ourselves out in our world, to prepare for the presence of the Lord. And as we see that in two ways this morning, that you are to get the path straight. I'll just remind you a couple verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus' first message when he gave a sermon later is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here it is. They say of John, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet. He's the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way or the path for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Again, preparing roads, patching up potholes. If you're out on an actual path, hiking somewhere rigorous, moving the boulders or the felled limbs off the path so that people can get through more easily. Preparing the way. So that the path can be walked upon and used and the journey can be completed. It says that people far and wide of Israel went out to John from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and the whole region. People came from everywhere and they came confessing their sins and being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Practicing repentance, humility, Restoring their relationship, leaving behind their comforts for a moment, their routines, their habits of thought and relating, going out into the wilderness and getting washed. This is not just about being uncomfortable, leaving home, leaving the market. It's not even glamping, you know, that's not the point. I don't think the point here is that they went out there to suffer or to show their perseverance or to build character the way we might if we went on a really hard, strenuous, multi-day hike. No, this is about them actually returning to their roots. Picture it if I just told you this way. There's a people of God that God set his love upon and chose to make them a people, and he led them out into the wilderness. And he was a pillar of fire and spirit, and he, he guided them throughout the day and through the night. They would camp. 
And then he would lead them to a new place and they would camp and they would follow him and they would listen to his words and they would follow his presence throughout the wilderness as they were promised a promised land. In order to get out there, they had to go through a Red Sea, a body of water and be cleansed and made his people. See, this is about them actually returning to their roots. It's not just about suffering. It's about becoming children again, starting over, recentering, reconnecting with the God who loved them and guided them and knew them, turning away from their version of the news and what Caesar's proclaiming is going to save us and all the business leaders say this is going to be better and we can build this beautiful temple and all the things that they do and returning to their first love. Yahweh who had guided them through water and through wilderness into a promised land. And so they're starting over, they're repenting, they're changing their mind by renewing it back to the beginning of being dependent on him. And so they're getting baptized in the Jordan River and this is how they begin to make the path straight. This is how John is making the path straight, getting people, the people of God to change their minds and their normal way of doing things, to go out into the wilderness and to re-encounter their first love, to be like children again, depending on his presence, listening to him, being washed, being born, as it were, again. And then they get it straight by what I've called purging this morning. I read this passage. Let me find it again. There it is. When I was a young man, I was not a believer And I went through a phase where I was seeking spiritually and I was trying all the different things. I read about this, practiced that, tried meditation. It drove me crazy at the time because I was sitting there, I can't, I just, I probably had ADHD. I was just like, this is impossible for me to empty my mind of thoughts. So I tried that for a week, didn't really work. One day I'm like, I'll I'll open up the Bible. I mean, maybe if that's real, if God's real, I'll open it up and see what verse he has for me. This is not a joke. I opened up the Bible and the verse that I read was this one from our passage. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I closed the Bible, and that was that. Didn't think about it for a few years. It wasn't entirely helpful to me. It was terrifying and unprofitable at the time. But some years later, a certain person, a friend of mine, a young life leader, started loving on me and started being kind to me and paying attention to me and including me and just treating me with a different kind of respect and intentionality than most anyone else did. And I became intrigued about why he was like this. And I began to see that he was a person of faith. And by watching his life, his way of life, the idea of faith became more plausible to me. Even when he said no to things that, oh, I'm not going to partake in that or do it just that way. Like, why not? That's what everyone does. To begin to see even things like his restraint and discipline, in addition to his joy and his faith and hope and kindness and his love, but this restraint and discipline he had, this obedience, a kind of simple submission to a higher power, something bigger than him. It looked like he had purpose and he was focused on it. That he was going to orient and integrate his entire life around this Jesus he was telling me about. And so faith began to seem beautiful implausible, even the tough demands of the faith, to constantly purge our lives of clutter and of chaos and of ways that destroy ourselves and one another. 
And so John says, as all these people come out, he's getting a crowd, and the Pharisees and lawyers and Sadducees come around, those with power, those with a vested interest in their version of the church running and colluding with power and being powerful and rich and influential. They come out. They don't come out to get baptized. They don't come out to repent. And so he says, I baptize all of you with water for repentance. Sorry, I skipped ahead a little bit, but after me, this is John talking. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that cloud of spirit and fire. And as he does this, as he comes in his fullness of God's presence, he's going to have a winnowing fork in his hand. He'll clear the threshing floor. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff will be burned up and the wheat will now be prepared by not having chaff in it to be cooked and consumed and turned into bread. This picture of purging, of refining, of purifying in order that we can have things to consume healthily. This idea of our lives being purged and renewed of the chaff from the wheat, those distractions, those things that are holding you back, those things that are keeping you in patterns that are destructive to you or to your neighbor, those things that keep you from experiencing the fullness of God, that Jesus is coming to purge that chaff from our lives, to give us focus and more fullness of his presence, clearing out the things in our hearts and communities that are not life-giving, no matter how attached to them we are. And so, for example... The Pharisees come out, and John says to them these words about he's coming to separate the chaff. And if you are full of hypocrisy, Pharisees, then he will clean that out from you, or he will clean you out of the people of faith. And then he speaks of their, so they're clinging to this. They're clinging also to their ethnic or religious heritage. That's why he has to bring up, oh, you think you have Abraham that's going to save you. That's not... See, see what he's doing? He's helping purge their minds. He's asking them to change their way of thinking. Don't presume to trust in your ethnic and religious heritage, being Abraham's children. He points out their lack of true fruit. No, no, no. Bear fruit that's in keeping with this new way of thinking, this new lifestyle. Jesus would talk about the Sermon on the Mount. He would talk about the Beatitudes, this different way of life. The great commandment being loving God and loving neighbor with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, Paul had a list about what fruit of the Spirit looked like later in his letters. But he's pointed out their sense of security and pride in all of these things that they have built back in the city. And he's warning them to take heed lest they fall and they miss out, lest the tree be chopped down. And of course, in the Old Testament, a tree is a symbol of the flourishing God wants for all of us to be like oaks of righteousness, to be like a tree planted by the water that bears fruit in its due season. We are called to purge. That's part of how we make straight. We purge things in our own minds and thinkings and habits and in our communities. Going out into the wilderness, reconnecting with God, simplifying, purging, so that we might become trees. We might become full of rightness, righteousness, full of wholeness and holiness, of beauty, of flourishing. We are called to prepare the way for Jesus. Even now, to prepare the way for Jesus to come into our lives and in our communities. Do you remember the Old Testament passage, what the Messiah would look like when he came? It's one lens we could 
we could read all the Gospels this morning if you want. It would take a while. We could look at the New Testament letters. We could imagine Jesus and all the different things he did. But we can also just use the text that we heard in Isaiah this morning. When this Messiah comes that they are preparing for, he is going to help us bear much fruit. The branch from him will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him like a new creation. It'll be a spirit that gives wisdom and insight. It's one that gives us counsel and helps us know what to do and gives us strength. A spirit of knowledge, of a fear of and honoring of the Lord. It'll be a delight, a spirit of delight. And he'll be a fair judge. He won't judge by what everyone else judges by. He'll be impartial. He'll give the poor and the meek what they deserve. And then the end of that glorious passage This picture of Shalom, when he does this, when he comes, the wolf will be with the lamb. A nursing child will be able to play with a snake. No one will hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. All the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. This is what we're preparing for. Justice. The full presence of God and all of those things I just described, insight, wisdom, delight, so on and so forth. And Shalom. The presence of God in his fullness, his counsel, that brings justice and shalom. But first, Israel went out into the desert. All that pomp and circumstance was happening in Rome and in other cities. All the power seemed like it was in the church courts of Jerusalem. But out here, out of sight almost, in the margins a community began preparing. And a community was being prepared. A people prepared for the Lord, prepared to recognize him, prepared to know him, to receive him, so that he would be with them and dwell with them in more fullness. This is what we are called to prepare for today and this season. And I'm going to just be practical as we close. This is hard to imagine in our day and age, that we would go into the margins, even that we would retreat from the centers of power to reconnect with our first love, our first faith, the first person who made us and loved us. Not everyone will understand, just as the Pharisees didn't, the Sadducees didn't, the lawyers didn't. We can't control people's response. Some people may not choose to receive him or recognize him. But we can prepare. We can prepare the way. In the same passage in the book of John, John is talking, giving the same speech, but there's a little added message in there. He says to these people that don't recognize Jesus, they say, among you, right now stands one whom you don't even know. And he's talking about Jesus. There's a lot of mystery and good news packed into that statement. Among you stands one you do not know. You could stand in line to get baptized behind Jesus and you did not know he was the Messiah. You could be sitting there right there, passing around the locusts and the honey, taking a little bit from him and not recognize that the person next to you is the same person who created the cosmos. Among you stands one you do not know and it's still true today, but we tend to forget it. Since the church has managed to make a name for itself for better and often for worse, 
But we have soaring cathedrals and budgets to do and stadiums that are filled with people. We've built impressive colleges and universities and hospitals. We've filled libraries with millennia's worth of Christian scholarship. And we tend to think that we need to hold on to this power in our way of life. That this is what's going to bring salvation to the world. And so we collude with power. But no. It's never been God's way. His way is the gospel way. It's the advent way. It's the margin way. That salvation comes through making the way straight in the wilderness and preparing for the Lord. And some people will not recognize that this is actually the most important work we can do. But some will, just as I noticed it in my friend who shared Jesus with me through his life when I was in high school. It is our job to join John the Baptist and the Old Testament people of God again in our time, trusting that even if we are marginalized, And when we are marginalized, that we are in the right place. If we are repenting and preparing, then Jesus is with us, making us new, giving us our childlike faith, and preparing us for a land of promise, for universal shalom, for flourishing. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him, all the nations will be curious. They'll inquire And his resting place will come, and it will be glorious. I've asked my friend a few times details about that wedding that he threw this summer. Who was there? What did you eat? Was there lobster? And he doesn't really want to talk about it. He's like, ah, nine months of preparation. You know what the best part of that wedding was, Jameson, he says? Dancing with my daughter, the father-daughter dance. Dancing with the bride. The joy on his face to see what a blessing they had given to his daughter and her happiness. The fullness that they had put in her heart by caring for her. And this moment of lavish generosity and love that she felt was what filled his fatherly heart with joy. And it's priceless. That's what we're preparing for. That's what we're counting the cost for. That's what we're straightening up for and getting ready for a universal, joyful dance of love between the bride and our bridegroom, Jesus himself, in the Father's presence and in our new lavish garden home that he is going to remake and renew. May God give us the grace to prepare for him even this morning as we continue to worship. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.